something within me says, wait a minute, you don't get to do a a story about believing you're not enough (laughs) and then finally figuring out that you are by taking other people's opinions that say that you're not enough. Just you, Cajardo, nobody's going to listen to you. (laughs) You're not enough. You need to add something to yourself in order for this to be seen. And so that's how deep it is for me is that I can't write in good conscience knowing that I'm dwelling in that area of I'm not enough. And I'm not saying that the voices don't come and say, who, who, who do you think you are, man? You're in Denver, Colorado. Who, who do you know? And you know a couple of people, but I mean, how do you think you're going to do this? Um, why you? Why should you tell this story? I mean, all these different voices, these, these limiting beliefs, this self-talk comes into play, but I'm so aware of it now that I'm able to um, pinch it in the bud. And I'm like, no, not today. Not today. Because this story doesn't get told unless I know that I'm enough. <laughs> because that's what I, I want other films to know about themselves, that they are. Any task that you've been given, that you have a desire and that you that, that lights your spirit, that you get passionate about, that time flies when you're doing it and it's not a drudgery like work and it's something you aspire to, I believe is within you in some way, shape or form. Maybe not to the, uh, the way that you envision it, but it's within you. And I am very careful about that. It's like I have these visions and I know how to operate in my, what I want to create, but I'm certainly not pinning it down on what it has to look like and limiting how it comes to me. to the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast, the exploration of life fully optimized with Megan Hotman. Hey listeners, we've got another new sponsor joining us here on the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast. We welcome Aspire to our lineup. You can find information about Aspire at denvermedispa.com. That's Denver. M-E-D-I-S-P-A dot com. Aspire's purpose is to help patients look five to 10 years younger. They craft the right skincare journey for each individual based on their desired outcome and goals. Aspire's founder, Pam Hemker, is one of our guests on the podcast. And when we talked, I explained to her that I am not really experienced in the way of facial skincare products. She did me a solid and put together a bundle, which she has called the Maximum Enthusiasm Product Bundle. You can find it on her website. And the first eight people to buy it will get it for a price of $147, which means that our listeners will get the Vitamin Seize the Day pads for free, normally a $59 value. After those first eight bundles are sold, their sponsorship means that the Maximum Enthusiasm Bundle will sell for $176, which is $30 off the normal price of $206. Check out the bundle on their website, denvermedispa.com, and go visit Aspire in person here in Denver, Colorado. Thanks so much for being a sponsor. Hey, listeners, welcome back. It is late May 2020, 
and there is a lot happening these days. Uh, things that we'll be reading about and talking about were part of history on so many fronts. And um, in this era of everything being different and changing, much of it for the better, and things being open for discussion and doing life differently than we've done it before between COVID and anti-racism breakthroughs and protests and all of us re-examining our lives, I couldn't wait to sit down with today's guest. He is a friend, a fellow lawyer. We've had the opportunity to be in trials together on the same side. He's incredible to watch in the courtroom. Um, here's where I want to start. Uh, I want to read you something from the website of this movie that Cajardo is working on. The film is not only about race. It is about doing what others say impossible. This film is about masks. The masks that some wear to make themselves superior as they demean others. This film also touches on the masks that many of us put on today to be accepted, loved, and even to hide, play it safe, and be nobody. The movie website asks the question, how many of us struggle with feeling like an imposter? Asking ourselves questions like, who am I to start a business? Who am I to go to college? Who am I to try to make a difference in this world? Who am I to do one of the millions of things we as human beings desire for ourselves? This film flips those questions on their head and asks, who are you not to do one of the millions of things we as human beings desire for ourselves? And if and when you do, what does it mean? So I know that Cajardo has been working on this movie for some time, and it's been really fun to watch him set these audacious fundraising goals and then surpass them. I think it's so awesome when you get to watch a friend who has a belief in something, whether it's a business or a project, but also a fair amount of self-doubt because, of course, it's so bold and so audacious. And then they get this messaging back from the universe, from people that want to support it, that absolutely reaffirms that they are in the right place, doing the right thing, that there is an immense amount of support behind them. Um, it's just re really, really been fun. And I most recently saw Cajardo at a, a legal convention, CTLA convention, a couple months ago back in February, which feels like it was five years ago. Uh, and we talked more and more about the movie. And he and I both have these passions in our life that are outside the practice of law. And it's been really interesting to watch uh, how he sort of navigates the practice of law with his passion for acting. And I feel a lot in common with him and with that constant balance and juggling act. Um, I want to just share, since it's fresh today, as of the day that I'm recording this introduction, after I recorded this podcast with Cajardo, and in light of all the anti-racism work that we are all doing, and hopefully continue to do forever, um, until, until, it is, until it is fixed, until it is right, but anyway, we are in the midst of, of learning and listening and doing better. I really got curious with myself about how I might try to help someone attend law school, um, specifically in the black community. And so I reached out to my law school, Creighton University. It's a private Jesuit school in Omaha, Nebraska. It's a very white school in a pretty white town. I think I had a few black students in my law uh, school class, but, but very, very few. And, um, 
it was just really on my heart, not just in speaking with Cajardo, but just generally, how could I help bring more diversity to the practice of law and specifically to the law school where I went? So just this morning, I got on the phone with the um, basically fundraising chair for the law school and said, can I create a scholarship for a African-American female student as a first year, which we call them a 1L, first year students are called 1Ls. Um, what does that look like for me to create a scholarship that would help someone, um, a, a young, a female African-American student? And we talked about how that looks and I pressed go and I'm, I'm over the moon about it. It's is one of those things that I did not do out of a sense of should or any sense of obligation or how it may make me look publicly or professionally. I am not even sure where or when I'm going to post it or if, um, but to have, but to have the opportunity to make an impact on someone who um, the tuition may be a deal breaker for them to attend Creighton University Law School, and uh, the gentleman in the office that I spoke with, when he said that these sorts of gifts really do make the difference between a student choosing Creighton over another school, um, absolutely has lit me up today. And I know as someone who also was the recipient of a scholarship from. Uh, a um, benevolent donor when I went to law school and it made a big difference helping me with some of my tuition and my books. It wasn't a huge scholarship, but it made a difference. And it was one of the reasons I actually stayed at Creighton instead of going to another law school. I now have this opportunity to pay it forward and also to try and be part of the solution as we are all wrapping our heads and hearts around how to do this better. And so um, that just happened today. And it's, I'm just so lit up about it and, um, of course, never saw myself as someone that would be someone that would make a scholarship possible. I would have never thought that that would be something I would be capable of or would have the opportunity to do. And so I just feel incredibly blessed by this already today, and I just am excited about where this may go and the opportunity to potentially connect with these students who are impacted with um, the scholarship, and I am just over the moon about it. So um, I wanted to just share that in this introduction of, of Cajardo's episode. And, and also I want to share, uh, he mentioned the book, The Surrender Experiment, which is a book that I've read a couple times now. And I wasn't in the right headspace the first time I read it, to be completely honest. The book really talks about a man who just basically meditates endlessly and then surrenders to whatever comes his way. And uh, he ends up being immensely successful and just basically focuses on the thing that's put in front of him, even when it seems completely ludicrous or out of the blue. Um, my favorite quote from the book is this, and it's written by Michael Singer. My formula for success was very simple. Do whatever is put in front of you with all your heart and soul without regard for personal results. Do the work as though it were given to you by the universe itself because it was. And it wasn't lost on me the way that uh, Cajardo mentioned this book in our episode because really since the beginning of this year, specifically since February, I have really been in a surrender state where I have let go of much of the tight, tight hold on the reins of my life that I have maintained for the last 40 years and have really relinquished control and the... Um, Events of this year have certainly aided me in that because there is so much that has been out of all of our control. Really just focusing on what comes up next, and that's what led to working at the bike shop, and that's what's led to me now 
doing some of these other incredible things that I would have never imagined and really just being in this curious, inquisitive state of mind about, huh, I wonder why that was just put in my path. And I wonder why that was just brought to me. And I wonder why that is the thing that's right in front of me. And in line with Cajardo's beliefs about his movie and the opening quote that you heard, doing whatever is put in front of you with all your heart and soul without regard for personal results is really a powerful place to be, especially right now when so much uncertainty exists. And surrendering to believing that the universe has our back, A, and B, just surrendering to what's going on around us without having to know what's next necessarily or having to have some big accomplishment or some big objective that we're working towards. And for me personally, it's brought about an immense amount of peace in this time when I would probably have been prone to just spinning my wheels or taking on arbitrary goals or setting these arbitrary objectives, um, checklists, to-do lists. I'm going to go ride X number of miles. I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going to have some crazy random task feat that I want to accomplish just for the sake of doing. So I think there's a big component of being in the surrender. And I would encourage you to read the book. You don't have to read the whole thing. You might just enjoy the first third or the first half and maybe you get the gist of it and you put it down. I definitely want to encourage you to check out Cajardo's movie website, which is blackfacemovie.com and read the page specifically about why this film and watch the short that they made. Please consider donating to the movie as well. You'll see that uh, donate button on the website. I made a donation to the movie. I'd love to see this come to fruition. I think it's a powerful message that we can all benefit from hearing. And certainly as someone who does suffer from imposter syndrome, on a frequent basis, I know that I would very much enjoy um, hearing this whole story and seeing it be played out on screen. So thanks as always for tuning in. I, um, I really think that you'll enjoy this message and this discussion with Cajardo. I do want to warn you that we were having a few technical difficulties, so there are just a few times when the audio drops. Just bear with us. I decided it would be actually more um, disruptive if we tried to edit through those. So there are some times when it gets quiet. Don't worry, we pick back up. And the second half, we had more consistent, reliable audio. So it's a far cleaner recording in the second half. Thanks, as always, to our friends over at Relish Studio 2 for doing the editing and the compilation of these uh, podcasts for me, because quite candidly, editing audio is not my cup of tea. So it this web, this podcast would not happen without them, without our friends over at Relish. Um, check them out, Relish Studio. I would love it if you would patronize their business, and I know they would love it too. Hope you go out and have a great day or evening filled with maximum enthusiasm, and here is yet another example of someone living their truest, best life, pursuing their passion, and living enthusiastically. Take care. Let's do this. Uh, my guest today is my friend and fellow lawyer, fellow Denverite, Kajardo Lindsay. Kajardo, welcome to the show. Hey, Megan. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. Talk about someone that exemplifies and exudes maximum enthusiasm to me. I have had the amazing opportunity to work with you in cases. I've seen you perform in trial at least twice. And I also had the opportunity to watch you perform at that theater here in Denver. Uh, remind me what it's called? 
is it uh, the Denver Center or Curious Theater or Curious Curious Theater? Yes. Curious. Okay. Yes, yes which was phenomenal, mm. and really only recently got to um, talk with you back in February. We were at a convention together, and we talked at length about your um, movie that you have written and that you are fundraising for and that you are acting in. And I, I really want to talk about this movie. So um, let's just start there. And then I also, of course, want to get into your history and what you did um, to become a lawyer and, and where you've been. I think your background is super interesting as well. Uh, but let's start, let's start with Blackface, uh, the story of nobody. So talk to me about why this film, Cajardo. Well, um, I guess it's probably more appropriate for me to talk about the, the origins. I, as far as me being in the entertainment industry, um, I'm an actor. I've been acting for several years. <clears throat> um, maybe about seven years ago, I was asked to do a reading um, downtown at the Denver Center. One of the students had a play called Harry the Great, and he wanted me to read one of the characters. So for those people, those who don't know, a reading is the actors get together, they stand at um, stands and they read characters. Uh, it's not a fully produced play. Anyway, this guy gave me the character of Burt Williams, which I was cool, didn't know who Burt Williams was. And when I read it, he was a black-faced minstrel and I was somewhat outraged. <laughs> ah. He would have me read for this character. Um, but I laid down my pride and I read the rest of the play and it was a fascinating play about a man that I didn't know was a historical figure, Bert Williams. Um, the play centered around Harry Houdini and I believe that, uh, Bert Williams was a contemporary of her, Harry Houdini. The character that was uh, written for me was so sweet, so human, so real, and so humble that, I mean, it just ignited the crowd when they heard uh, the reading of it. And afterwards, uh, many people came up to me and was like, oh my gosh, that's the story. Who was this Burt Williams guy? And I humbly agreed. I'm like, somebody needs to write a story about this guy. And as soon as I said that, I felt this impression says, yep, and it's going to be you. <laughs> which oh. is me. And I'm like, what? I mean, I do some writing, but, you know. So anyway, I left it alone. You know, I, I, I did. I left it alone. And um, this so happened, I was um, at another reading, and I was telling a woman about uh, an idea of a story that I had about this Bert Williams. <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, she remembered that and entered oh. my um, at a reading down at the Denver Center for new plays. And so when she said that I'd gotten in, of course I had to hurry up and finish this play that I was writing. It was a little short 10-minute play about Burt Williams at the time. And at, at that time it was called Nobody. And I did the play. Um, and again, people were really hungry to know about that particular character. And so, of course, I took it more serious. I hired a writing coach out of New York City. And I started um, writing this story. This is the truncated version because oh, there's on, a whole Cardo, lot I of history you. about I'm race and why right I started now. this. But this is a truncated story because we have an hour. Um, and so I Where'd wrote you go on this me? play. 
And my writing coach said, Gerda, why are you trying to write a stage play when your sensibilities are for the screen? You Still write there? images for movies, not for plays. <laughs> and after she said that, it couldn't have been more than two weeks when I spit that screenplay out. And, um, and that was about four or five years ago. So here we are. Here like, we are. We have nobody. I've changed the name. Um, one of the impetuses for me in writing this is that as an actor here in town, I was hard pressed to find um, people who looked like me on stage when it came to classical theater. <clears throat> uh, I won't name any places, it's just that was my experience. So it's hard for me to take my children to these plays, Shakespeare and Ibsen and whatnot, and, and we are not reflected on stage. And so I conflated the, the disappointment with that and this guy, Bert, William, Bert Williams, and I created a story. Now, Bert Williams was a blackface minstrel in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s. Prolific. Um, was rumored at one point in time to make more than the president. And this is as a black man. He worked vaudevillian shows um, under, at the end of his career, under Zigfield, with the Zigfield Follies, Florence Zigfield, and made a ton of money. I bought several books, autobiographies of him, and just found out that this man really wanted to do serious drama, but he was regulated to doing blackface um, minstrels. And I said, well, what would happen if I gave him an opportunity in my screenplay? So my screenplay is about a black man in 1918 who grows weary of performing in blackface, and he gets the amazing opportunity to play William Shakespeare's Hamlet on Broadway without blackface, but first must come face to face with his true worth. Mm. And so that's how we started a screenplay from there. <laughs> Which I have to say, now and always, the concepts that you're talking about are relevant. Um, what I love about the website, and I want everyone to go visit it, it's blackfacemovie.com. And when you on the page about why this film, you talk about the imposter syndrome. You talk about how many of us struggle with feeling like an imposter, asking ourselves questions like, who am I to start a business? Who am I to go to college? Who am I to make a difference? And the film flips these questions on their head and asks, who are we not to do one of these things that we desire for ourselves? And I think that is so poignant for me, especially I suffer from imposter syndrome and and so many do. And I think it's such a powerful message and it's timeless. And I'm sure you got to do some work on yourself as well as you wrote this and, and did some of the. Oh my God. Well, <laughs> got a chance to do some work. I mean, I can't divorce my, my experience from what I've written because right. I'm writing what I know. Um, and that even dovetails into my start in the practice of law when we get into that. I'm only writing what I know. <laughs> uh, I'm only writing what I've gone through. I'm only writing some of the things that I've been healed of. But yeah, I cannot divorce my experience from the writing of this play. In fact, I mean, it's so weird. <laughs> On some levels, when I get in my, I, I, I've talked to a lot of people about my screenplay at this point in time, people in Hollywood. Um, it's been, oh my gosh, um, we were just, contacted last week 
for a from a uh, an entertainment production company out of LA. Who's been oh, around? So exciting! Wanted to read the script. I was contacted several months ago by um, uh, DreamWorks Amazon. Oh, that's uh, so awesome! And got back to me as well. Um, and so I just talked to a lot of people, but and in doing that, you're going to hear inevitably these people uh, from the coast uh, telling you how it should be done. And then there are times when I buy into it. You're going to need a huge cast of famous actors to do this. And I'm not, I don't know who's going to end up doing my play, except for me. I don't know who's going to end my screenplay. I don't know who's going to be in it. Um, but when I hear that and I buy into it, something within me says, wait a minute, you don't get to do a, sto a story about believing you're not enough <laughs> and then finally figuring out that you are by taking other people's opinions that say that you're not enough. Just you, Cajardo, nobody's going to listen to you. <laughs> You're not enough. You need to add something to yourself in order for this to be seen. And so that's how deep it is for me, is that I can't write in good conscience knowing that I'm dwelling in that area of I'm not enough. And I'm not saying that the voices don't come and say, who, who, who do you think you are, man? You're in Denver, Colorado. Who, who do you know? And you know a couple of people, but I mean, how do you think you're going to do this? Um, why you? Why should you tell this story? I mean, all these different voices, these, these limiting beliefs, and these, this self-talk comes into play, but I'm so aware of it now that I'm able to um, pinch it in the bud and I'm like, no, not today. Not today. Because this story doesn't get told unless I know that I'm enough. <laughs> because that's what I, I want other films to know about themselves, that they are. Any task that you've been given, that you have a desire and that you that, that lights your spirit, that you get passionate about, that time flies when you're doing it and it's not a drudgery mm -hmm. like work and it's something you aspire to, I believe is within you in some way, shape, or form. Maybe not to the, uh, the way that you envision it, but it's within you. And I, I'm very careful about that. It's like I have these visions and I know how to operate in my, what I want to create but I'm certainly not pinning it down on what it has to look like and limiting how it comes to me so that if, you know, I might be seeing it a certain way and someone comes with a different approach, if I cut them off and don't want to hear it because it's not the way that I've envisioned in my head, I might be cutting off the very resource that's going to help me get this thing done. That sounds like a tough line to walk, but it also sounds like you're really clear on your internal compass and your true north. I mean, it sounds like that voice in you is persistently loud enough that you you continue to come back to your truth on this. Well, yeah, that's the beauty of the whole thing is that um, I've gone after enough things and accomplished enough things to know that for me at this point, the most beautiful thing and, and, and going after anything is just the journey. I've been so tied up into outcomes and realizing it's not that. I mean, you know, we've done cases and mm -hmm. extremely fortunate uh, with regard to verdicts. And I thought that that's what I wanted. I wanted to get giant verdicts and, and be able to say, look what I've done. And there's nothing in that for me. <laughs> but what I did uh, receive is the angst when you prepare for trial, the nervousness. Am I going to be accepted? Um, Am I going to tell a story that they're going to to resonate with 
am I going to um, vigorously represent um, my client? And going through the fear and the struggle of all of those things is where my true growth came about. Not to hear them say, this, uh, this is your verdict. It was like going through all the way up to that point. That's where the, the riches were for me. And I think likewise, uh, in this situation of creating this movie, <clears throat> that's where it's going to be. Now, don't get me wrong. I definitely want to see this vision that I have in my head put up on the screen so that people can experience what I see in my head. But at the end of the day, um, I feel like in so many ways, I've already won to even say that this is what mm. I'm going to remember back in February or March of last year, when it was just the seed of an idea of, 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 of um, putting it out there to people that this is what I wanted, to, uh, this is what I was going to do. And I just remember getting up the courage to go on Facebook and say, this is what I'm going to do in front of all my friends and in front of my colleagues and just putting it out there, knowing that when it's out there, it's out there. Mm -hmm. That's something that I would never have done. Just never would have. <laughs> I mean, I would have worked toward it um, behind the scenes and had no accountability. Now I get phone calls. Where's the movie at? Uh, emails and whatnot. And it's just like people want to know. And I'm like, yeah, God, I did put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> Which is beautiful. I mean, and I found that in my life that when I um, create a specific intention, that's when things get done. Um, well, if you needed proof that people believe in you, I know that you posted on Kickstarter last year, a year ago. Uh, it looks like on your goal page, the goal was $80,000 and you surpassed that with the pledges that you received. That had to feel like a really good step in the right direction, surely. That Absolutely, especially in light of the fact that, um, can you still hear me? Hear me? Uh-huh, yep. In light of the fact that... Uh, yep, I still got you. Yeah, I kind of, we uh, solicited Kickstarter to hey, this idea uh, I just lost for you again. Film. we're trying to raise money. And and so I was talking to the internal um, administration aspects of Kickstarter, which I didn't even know they had. They have a film division, documentary and narrative films. Mine is Jardo? a narrative film. <laughs> and they said, we want to put you on our list of projects that we love. And I was like, wow, great. But they said, this, this, this number, though, you're trying to get $80,000. Like, yeah. Um, do you have any named actors? No. Well, you might want to lower that. I'll say, well, what would you suggest? They said maybe 20000 Oh, wow. And I'm like, uh, that's not, no, nah, that's not what I'm getting. And to be quite honest, the, 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 the money was the number for me to, to just get my intention going. Because $20,000 in my head, I can raise that in a heartbeat. It's this eighty thousand that concerns me, and I'm like, I I need to know if people want to hear about this stuff. Is there yeah. money for it? And so, um, one of my producers, who's also a filmmaker, he too came to me. He's like, Jared, I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm I'm not seeing it done, especially when you don't have a named actor, not even a named actor in it, like a named actor saying something on your behalf to give you credibility. I mean. I've just not seen it. And I said, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> we'll do it in 30 days. And we got 
$81,000 in 30 days with no name talent, just doing an impassioned plea to people that this is a story that needs to be told. Uh, it's a story um, that delves into, of course, racism with blackface. So for people who don't know what blackface is, and remind me to come back to this point where we were, sure. we were talking, on, talking about blackface is a was a form of entertainment that was created around in the 1830s um, by a man named Thomas Dartmouth Rice. He was an actor. And he got the idea of putting black uh, substance on his face. I'm not sure what he used specifically, but they used grease paint, they used shoe polish or, or burnt cork on his face. And he started doing a show where he played out um, hurtful stereotypes of the enslaved community. Um, his worst stereotypes, and it just really caught on. You still there, um, these Stereotypes of being of black people that we've seen even to this day of being lazy, of being hypersexual, of being um, not bright. Uh, I mean, you name it, loving watermelon and chicken, fried chicken, all these different, you know, hurtful things that we do, that, that, that have been done, rather. And it caught on like wildfire. It was actually the Netflix Gerardo, of its time. And it was mainly done by white performers. They would get in blackface and they would speak this... Uh, um, Hey there, um, I'm calling you. We're still recording, but I just lost the last about two minutes of whatever you said. I think your internet dropped, so I just wanted to catch you by phone. Oh, man, I hear you. There, now I can hear you. Yeah, there's been chunks where you've just dropped off, I think, due to internet glitches. So I oh, just missed, I missed so the sorry. last. Well, that's not your fault, but I just missed a lot of what we just talked about where you were saying that you, you hit the $80,000 mark and, um, and then I didn't hear much after that. Oh, gosh. All right. Let me go back. Sorry, listening audience. Um, so we hit the $80,000 mark. Are you still with me? I am, yes. Okay. And um, people were, uh, at least one of my producers was pretty shocked that we were able to do it. He says, Gajardo, I've never seen it done. I just haven't seen it done. Um, and for me, it was really encouraging to know that we were on to something. Um, that we have been able to tell various people, including DreamWorks Amblin, hey, this is what we were able to do with nobody who has a significant name in the business um, attached to the project at, at this point. And so what I was saying um, before we were dropped is that I, uh, I was given the history of blackface. And did you hear any of that? Yeah, um, something about uh, 1830, and then I didn't yeah, touch so back in 18, that, uh, So back in the 1830s, it was um, created by a man by the name of Thomas Dartmouth Rice. He was an actor. And he got the bright idea of putting black residue on his face. At the time, they would use anything from grease paint, burnt cork residue uh, shoe polish on their faces 
and to play out the worst stereotypes of their times of black people or enslaved people um, at that time, which were black people. Um, Whether it be black people or the enslaved people were lazy, um, hypersexual, not right. Um, He would get on stage shuffle and speak in this exaggerated tone um, with many references of watermelon on stage as well to play out his idea of what black people were about who we were and i was saying that you still there i am yes okay that it caught on like wildfire it was like the netflix of its time you got to think yeah. back then times there there weren't movie theaters there was radio um, and these minstrel vaudevillian shows were the money makers, <clears throat> and they were white men who would put this stuff on their face and, and exaggerate their lips in red and do these hurtful comic routines. There came a time when, um, when that's what all Broadway was. And if you were black and you wanted to perform, you couldn't get on stage without doing the very same thing, blacking up your face, which is already brown from your color. Right. Make fun of your own race. I won't say culture because it wasn't our culture, but it was just make fun of your own race. Wow. That's the price of admission to getting on stage. So if you're someone like me, who absolutely loves and has a passion for getting on stage and not only entertaining, but educating through my work, you had to do it by putting blackface on because we didn't own any major theaters. Wow. And not only and that, you're only the major acting theaters required to blackface. Wow. And so you had to mimic the, the, um, like you had to make fun of your own race in order yes. to have the opportunity to be on stage. It wasn't just the makeup. It was also the content of what you had to act out. That was your only option if you wanted to be an actor. Yes, and I believe that many of the Black, um, and at the time they were called Negro performers at that time, they wanted to provide for their families, and they wanted to perform in, in, the, in reputable houses. And I believe in their minds they thought that they could bring some sort of dignity to to it, which is just damn near impossible. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, given the content of what they were being asked to act out, absolutely. That's a very difficult line to walk. Right. And so mm. here we have it. So that's part of the story of the film, as your website indicates, is this actor, this gentleman, getting clear with himself about who he is and setting aside the feelings of being an imposter, asking himself, who am I to do that? And he's actually removing his makeup in order to be his truest self, his full self, in being enough, as you said. Correct. So just to give a little background, a little bit more information without giving the film away, I mean, with this man who humiliates himself nightly, thinking in his mind that he can change white people's minds about who we are. Um, because he's a dignified man. When you when he's not on stage, you'll see this guy's a three-piece suit wearing, very educated, has a driver, wears ascots, 
lives in Harlem in a very beautiful house. He, he wants to change the narrative. Um, and he finds one day his uh, nieces and nephews surreptitiously uh, acting out one of his performances. Oh. And it breaks his heart. <clears throat> oh. And so that puts the trajectory of I have to have a change, you know. And through some fortuitous uh, circumstances, uh, he has asked to perform Hamlet on Broadway, um, which scares the heck out of him. And of, of course, he's reluctant initially. Um, sure. And a role was originally offered to uh, Broadway's darling, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy, young guy who everyone loves, who's actually being obstinate about taking the role, playing hard to get, and next you know the role is given to this black man. And of course oh, wow. that gets his goal, says that's not gonna happen. I'm gonna make get me a producer to put up another Hamlet going on, opening the same night as yours. And so we have these dueling Hamlets. Oh, wow. Going on at the same time. Um, mm. So that's the race component, that's the low hanging fruit. Ultimately, what makes this story um, universally appealing, I believe, is that you see, we go through a journey through the eyes of this black man, which is we don't often get to do that in film. I mean, unless you're Denzel Washington or Samuel Jackson, you're seeing black, or Mahershala Ali, you're seeing black men are the sidekick or subordinate roles. Well, with this, you get to go through this journey of a man who was trying to find out who he is, <laughs> uh, afraid that he's not enough, has the weight of the race on his shoulders if he doesn't show up good, so to speak. Right, right. And then, and I won't tell any more about the film. Fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. Well, and so that's really the next question I want to ask is there is a short teaser on your website, which I'll refer people to in the link so that they can watch, watch you and watch your acting in that. Um, and I recognize that you're in the fundraising process. The Kickstarter has ended, but you can still donate to this film. It uh, looks like you have a GoFundMe page set up and then also just on the Blackface um, website, it looks like you can be a supporter and so really selfishly, for those of us that want to watch the entire movie, you know, what does it take to help you bring this to fruition? So the money that we raised through Kickstarter was $80,000. That was for development, um, was for packaging, um, what we want to uh, produce. So it, I'm learning so much about filmmaking and what you have to do before you even get it going. And so we had to hire someone to create what's called a pitch deck. It's a deck that you show um, investors. In fact, I was working on it this morning to give them a look and feel of what the film is going to be about, um, who you anticipate or who you're looking at as far as some of the roles in the film. And basically, it just lets gives uh, potential um, equity investors or philanthropic investors an understanding of what you're shooting for. You also have to create a business plan. Sure. Because you're doing a short, uh, uh, independent film. It's a, it's a small business. Um, letting you people know what is your strategy to make their money back. And so we had to invest money and I had to take classes and figuring out how to do that and figuring out about wow. distribution and sales agents. All these things that um, take place, uh, which are really the hardest part about getting a movie seen, not even filming the movie. And then wow. also 
hiring consultants um, for the script. And so that's where a lot of that money is gone. Um, what I didn't tell you is that the, the screenplay has won two different awards, one of which is, uh, it was named a semifinal at the Austin Film Festival. Oh, wow. Congratulations. I did not know that. That's huge. Yes, it is huge. And I didn't know how huge it was. Um, in fact, I was in a deposition <laughs> when I was called by the, the organizer of the Austin Film Festival. He's like, Yo, I want you to know your screenplay is advanced as, as a semifinalist. And I was like, oh, cool, great. He's like, do you understand what that means? I'm like, am I a semifinalist? Cajardo, the Austin Film Festival is the largest, one of the largest, if not the largest film festivals in the world when it comes to writers. And a lot of people don't know that. We receive an abundance of, trans, of submissions. So to say that you're a semifinalist, that means your script is in the top 2% of 12,000 scripts that were submitted this year. Wow. Like, oh, Oh my gosh, so we're coming. He says, we need you to come out to, we would love for you to come out to the Austin Film Festival because that's some of that money we use to go out, plane tickets to, uh, to, to network at the Austin Film Festival, which was this past October, uh, 2019. Then we also uh, were semifinalists for We Screenplay um, Diverse Voices. It's a lab out of Los Angeles that, um, wants to highlight diverse voices, diverse voices being LGBTQ community, people of color, uh, writers, possibly over 50, uh, just getting those stories out. And we made it um, as semifinalists for that. And they also had another competition, We Screenplay Out of LA, which is a feature comp, just basically everybody who writes features, and we made it as a finalist uh, for that. And so we just, we use the money in order to highlight these different things um, to help package the film for investors. So yes. And so uh, right now, uh, you've just seen our website, which we recently had revamped. And we also put the component, which is spanking new. I'm not, I, didn't, I wasn't even sure that you saw it, about the GoFundMe. Yeah. Continued development, but also, I mean, I'm not limiting it either if we, I want to start raising, I'm going to start raising money for the film. Um, my plan was to announce a start date for shooting, which was going to be <laughs> later mm -hmm. month, and then coronavirus hit. Shoot. Which has, um, and I'm a firm believer in, you know, you have to set a date and then let people get on the band, get on, get on the train with you. Um, That's right. I wasn't to do that because no one knows everything is shut down right there, there, i mean very little shooting done at all across the world because of this thing you know it's too much liability of getting people together in groups and then they get sick and then you got money on the line and millions of dollars and people get sick and can't finish it it's just it's just it's a big mess right now and so people sure. are anticipating maybe uh up to shoot um at the earliest january 2020 so I'm still feeling out that time frame, but once I get something that I feel relatively confident in, I am going to set a date, and then we're going to do a big push to raise money, people, you know, to shoot this film. So that is one thing that we can all do to help right now, then in the in-between, is just give you some additional financial backing via the link 
on your website, um, as you start to pull all the pieces together, you know, certainly the, the financial support will con continue to be a really important part of this. So I will definitely be directing everyone to that. And again, the website is um, blackfacemovie.com. And at the top, you can click on the support and then there's a donate now button there. So I think that's fantastic. And also just elevating the uh, Instagram account that you have, which is the blackface. Um, I want to make sure I get this correct. It's um, face movie. At, it's black. It's at blackface movie. Yeah, on Instagram, yeah. Um, elevating mm -hmm. that and sharing that. And um, I feel like this is something that I mean, I really, really, really want to see this movie selfishly for myself. Just given the description you've given me, I suspect that it will help me and change me the way that you've described that it has impacted you and, and what's so fascinating to me. And um, as you share about even just your own self-doubts and who am I and I'm this guy in Denver. And and yet my impression of you has always been that you're so incredibly confident and you know exactly what you want and you're going to do it and you just execute stuff and you're so skilled and you're such an articulate, impassioned speaker that I would never have guessed that you would suffer from some of the self-doubt that you've described. And I think that just goes to the heart of the movie, right? That we can, we can wear certain faces and we can demonstrate certain things. And yet at our core, we can still be filled with self-doubt. I think that's just such a powerful message that would benefit yeah. everyone that could see this movie. So I really want to help you bring this thing to fruition, however I possibly can. Um, and I want to pivot a little bit and just talk about our similarities. You know, we do both practice law and, and we both enjoy the work as lawyers, but we also have these passions outside of work that really, really drive us. And my question for you is, were you an actor first or a lawyer first? Which one started first for you? That's kind of complex, but uh, I guess the <laughs> yes and no answer is like, I, was a, I was an actor first before I became okay. an actor. But I went to law school before I became an actor. Okay. Okay. And then at My some point in there, oh, go ahead. I never intended to go to law school. I, it was never a dream of mine. It was never something that entered my my consciousness of being a lawyer. I kind of fell into it. <clears throat> um, I guess there's a story with that that I can share. <laughs> yes, please <laughs> do. Some context around that. So. Um, I thought when I was younger and even into my, my formative years and in, in, uh, in my mid to late teens that I was going to be going to the National Football League. I played football at Miami University and that was just my dream. Um, nothing else entered into my mind about what I was going to do. Um, my junior year, I lived in Cincinnati. I live in Cincinnati. That's where I grew up in Cincinnati. Okay. Ohio. And um, I had a really good friend of mine who I played with who lived in Akron, which is in northern uh, Ohio. And he had promised his girlfriend that he was going to take her out. And his girlfriend lived in Cincinnati, where I lived. And he was unable to fulfill that promise. Something came up. And he asked me to take his girlfriend and her friends out. I said, sure. And so we went across the river to Kentucky. That's where uh, we normally go to party. And it was as far okay. <laughs> And they wanted to go to a different bar than I'd ever been to. And I was kind of reluctant. They was like, yeah, we want to go to Roscoe's. I'm like, I've, not, I've never been to Roscoe's. But that's where we want to go. So it was me, my uh, best friend's girlfriend, and then her two friends. So we go to Roscoe's. And we walk in. And there's no one that looks like us in Roscoe's. No one. 
but they have really good music, hip hop music. So we go in and we dance. I'm telling you, we dance and have a great time. Literally about two hours. You still there? Oh yeah. Um, I go to the bathroom and I come out and they're gone. Uh oh. I searched the whole um, club and I can't find them. Finally, I just leave the club and they're outside. I'm saying, why did you guys leave me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They say, Gerardo, we didn't leave you. We were kicked out. Oh, wow. Kicked out. I said, we were accused of stealing drinks. Said, what do you mean? Like jumping over the counter and taking a bottle of wine? I said, no, Gerardo. They accused us of taking, and it was only white people in there. Um, and we were all black, uh, taking their drinks that were on their tables and drinking out of them. Oh, wow. I said, are you kidding me? I said, no. Since I was the only guy, I felt like I had to, do, in some way, shape, or form, defend them. I was not a part of that. So I went back to the front door of this club, and I remembered, Megan, like yesterday. This I bet you do. To the manager, and they brought this manager down. He was about 5'11, 180 pounds, brown hair, part down the middle, had a blue shirt and khaki pants and some docker shoes. Like, and I said to him, Hey, my friends were kicked out of the club and they were accused of stealing drinks. Personally, I think that's disgusting, but can we see the people or talk to the people who accused them? And he said, uh, Am I allowed to use language on their show? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yep, we do it he all said, the time. Get the fuck away from my club. And he swung and he oh. hit the back of the head. I put oh, my man. to defend myself. I wasn't looking at the seven bouncers that were right beside him. Before you know I knew it, they all converged on me. Oh, they, no. they ripped my clothes off except for my pants. I didn't have any shoes. I didn't have a shirt on. I had contacts on. They maced me so I couldn't see. The girls tried to help me, but of course, you have seven big men <laughs> trying to. Yeah. So finally, they put me in handcuffs and they called the police. Unbelievable. They knew nothing about me. They didn't know that I went to a college prep school that was probably one of the top schools in the country, a top 100 schools in the country, that I'd never been in any trouble, never seen the inside of a cell ever. And I'm out here with handcuffs on, the police showed up. And as soon as they got there, I start talking. I said, this guy assaulted me and the police officer, the woman, she said, shut up. Oh no. And I said, what? She said, shut up. And at that point, the other guy said, yeah, this guy came into my club. He's talking about me. He said, he came into my club and he took a swing on me. And I said, man, I am 5'11", 205 pounds. I'm a strong safety on a Division I football team. If I would have hit you and you weren't, you wouldn't be standing. That is not what happened. She said, shut up. If you say another word, I'm taking you to the station. I said, well, I'm going to keep talking because he's lying. And then she put me in a police car. I said, well, please take me straight to the station because I'm claustrophobic. She left me in there with tight handcuffs for about 40 minutes. And finally, no way. Oh, done, God. I was charged with a felony of assault because I guess in all the melee, I broke one of the guy's teeth when I was defending myself. Called my parents. We, we were novices. To, I knew nothing about the system. I'd never been in trouble. I didn't even know which way to turn. Um, we made too much money for a public defender, but not enough to get a really good attorney. 
And at the time I had a sports agent who was a corporate lawyer. He said, man, I'll come down and represent you because this is just asinine. He said, let's just get it continued and, and, and it won't go any further. So we got the case continued and these seven bouncers all show up and a prosecutor comes to me and says, they all have the same story. Your story is the only one that's different. I couldn't find the, uh, the other girls to bolster my story because I really didn't know them. <laughs> right, right. And I'm faced with a plea bargain. They said, you can take a plea to a misdemeanor assault or we're going forward with this felony. And if you get convicted, you're going to lose your scholarship. Unbelievable. Of course, I was terrified. Uh, and and we I sat down and talked with my parents at the time. And it felt like the right thing to do with what was against me was to plead guilty. So I did. I pled guilty to something that I absolutely did not do. I remember crying and throwing up saying that totally went against the constitution of what I, I'm about. I would never hurt anybody or put my hands on anybody unless I'm defending myself. And I remember being this feeling of being disempowered Oof. that they could just say whatever they wanted to say. And because, and I, I don't even think I really understood the dynamics of race at that time. This was one of those, I was, I was young. I couldn't have been more than 18. I was like, what? I, I did, it hadn't fully formed. I mean, I've had, had some experiences, but it hadn't really formed what this was about. And so um, I pled. And I remember that feeling like I don't ever want to be in this position again. And I didn't do about it, but I said, I need to learn to find out what my rights are. I just need to figure this out. And, and it just so happened that, you know, I continued on, tried to play football, hurt myself. And my agent was a lawyer at one of the largest law firms, corporate law firms in Cincinnati. And he said, I'd hurt myself. He says, Kadradia, you're not going to get drafted and you're not going to be a free agent. You're hurt. He says, but I can get you a job at my law firm and you can work out uh, until next year and try it again. I said, okay. Uh -huh. But in the back of my head, I kept up that feeling disempowered and didn't know what my rights were or never knew that I had to know what my rights were. And that all led to me just getting energized about going to law school. And so that's what I did. I applied for a ton of schools. Um, I didn't do myself any uh, any favors in undergrad because I'm thinking I'm going to the NFL. And so I didn't right. really apply myself, although, uh, <laughs> but I think the high school that I went to really helped me. Um, and so I, I applied and I ended up getting into uh, a few schools and I chose Indiana University. And while I was at Indiana University, in my second year of law school is when I caught the acting bug. Ah. I, yes. Uh-huh. So, um, it's that too, if you want me to, <laughs> well, which is so yes, weird because. Yes, I, I would love to hear more about that. And I'm also just realizing the similarities between you and I, that we both discovered our passions while we were in law school. And then we've been navigating how to put the two together ever since. <laughs> yes. Yes. I didn't know that about you. Cool. I thought you'd been biking since you were little. <laughs> Oh, no. Cycling was a pursuit that found me my third year of law school. So um, and like you, I did not ever see myself as a lawyer. I didn't grow up as a kid excited to be a lawyer. I went to law school purely as an extension of college since I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I can completely relate to your experience of finding something you really love at the same time that you're pursuing your um, legal career. So so tell me how the acting bug bit you in Indiana, your second year of law school. 
Oh yeah, well, very quickly, I was I had a class that was off campus. It was conflict resolution. I I, I know I got an A in that class because it was one of my favorite classes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, the most bizarre experience is that that toward the end of that term, I kept hearing when I was walking to this class, the little word acting pop up in my head. And after several times of this happening, I was like, this is bizarre. And so I went back to my um, my my apartment. I pulled out a director. I said, does Indiana University have an acting school? And I found out that they did, and it was really a nice one. And so I decided to march right over to the acting department. And there's a woman there, uh, Southern Belle. Her name was Marilyn Norris. And I said, ma'am, I am a law student, but for some reason... I feel like I need to be here acting. And she just whistled and says, well, whatever I need to do, I'll help you. And she said, "Um, why don't you start out by coming to see some of our masters of fine arts students in this acting competition called the National Society of Arts and Letters. I was like, great, that's a good start. After I said that, something happened within me and I was like, I wanna be in this. And I signed up for the competition. Oh my God, I love it. Of course you did. <laughs> I got into the competition. Um, I knew nothing. They say you're going to need a um, classical resume and a contemporary resume. I knew nothing about any of that. I researched it. This is all while I'm still taking my law school classes. Right. Um, <laughs> I knew at the time was a guy by the name of James Mumford, who was uh, in the music department at Indiana University. And I said, Mr. Mumford, Dr. Mumford, I need help with my monologues. I want to enter this acting competition. Note to self, don't go to a strictly music guy to help you with your acting monologue. (laughs) (laughs) Oops. Because if I could show you what he was telling me to do, oh my God, you would bust out laughing. But I did everything he told me to do. He says, and when you say this word, I want you to look over your shoulder. You stare at the judges and then you say the word this way. Everything he told me I did. (laughs) Okay. And it was horrible. It was disgusting. (laughs) Um, but I had so much fun. I went on the the following year to to win the competition, but it was only after I found out that at Indiana University, at least at that time, you could take classes outside of your discipline as long as you can show that there was some sort of nexus between this class and what you would be doing in the practice of law, which was acting and trial practice. Of course, total nexus. In classes. For my law degree. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I ended my law school courses in London, England. I did a British externship in the British Ends of Court. And while I was over there, I took acting classes classes from British acting coaches. Oh, wow. I, I said, you know what? I think I'm an actor. I don't think I'm an attorney. And I came back to the States, graduated, and I started my acting career. In Bloomington, Indiana, I started with doing community theater. That's what I was going to do and work my way up to Broadway. <laughs> but I'm going to do community theater. And that's what I did. I graduated and I hadn't thought about it. And I know we're short on time, but I didn't come back to the practice of law until eight years later after I was married and I had a kid and I needed money. And my wife said, you got to do more than this 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 community theater stuff, we need to make some money. And I said, I don't know what I can do. And she says, don't you have your law degree? (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) I said, yeah, but I'm not a lawyer. Oh, (laughs) I love it. 
Well, I became one of those guys. I studied for the bar. One of my friends who I had gone to undergrad with had just moved to Denver to become a corporate attorney. And she oh. got that I was going to take the bar. She gave me her Barbary, uh, bar review um, books. And that's all I did. I, every night I just read the books and reacquainted myself. Are you still there? Yep, I'm still here. I reacquainted myself with this, 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 these law, <laughs> these laws that I hadn't seen for several years. That's and incredible. Asked the bar. My first job was as an insurance defense lawyer for six months. I couldn't take it anymore. Oh, I did not know that about you. That's interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm still good friends today with the guy who I worked for. Who his name is uh, Brad Baldwin. I mean Robert. Okay. Robert Baldwin, Brad Baldwin is another guy that I know from my acting community. Robert Baldwin, he gave me my first job down on Larimer Square. I was doing insurance defense. And, and um, did you go straight from that to being a DA? Yeah, because I had already applied for the DA's office. It just took a while. And six months later, the DA's office called me and says, hey, you have a spot if you're willing to work for us. And that's where my trial practice began at the Denver District Attorney's Office under Bill Ritter. I see. And you got to really use a lot of the acting that you had learned and developed, I'm sure, in all of those jury trials. Yeah, I had no idea how it would come into play because uh, the, pra the trial practice was, was so new to me. And, and, you know, in another podcast, I, I was really traumatized. There's other reasons why it took me seven years to practice law. I just had some really scarring and traumatic um, things that happened. Uh, when I was in law school interning for these corporate firms where I was oh, the no. only kid person there uh, that really scarred me badly. Uh, um, that just For me, were just unbelievable. I'm like, I'm a law student. Why are you treating me this way? I don't understand this. And this is, and it is, and it's not something in, in your head. I mean, this was some cruel, some cruel shit. But even when I look back as an adult, I'm like, you do that to a 22 year old. I don't know. It, it was it's bizarre, which really well, this isn't that long ago either. This is recent. This isn't that long ago that this kind of stuff was going down. Yes, yes, but it scared me from the practice of law. It's like you're not smart enough to be a law a lawyer. That's what they they. I mean, I don't know why they hired me this law firm, but I mean that's the message that I got when I left there. I actually had to to leave and quit. I, I just I can't. I had to protect myself psychologically because it was just unconscionable. I was like, what? I don't understand, you know? <laughs> and I just didn't have any advocates there to, you know, that I felt comfortable, you know, going to and, and helping with, with these issues. And so uh, wow. I entered practice of law with these scars and these feelings that I'm not enough. And I started at the DA's office and and most of my time is spent in that office making sure that I cover all of my bases, that no attorney is going to come up with anything that I haven't thought of. I work every weekend. You can talk to my wife. I mean, she barely saw me because I was so afraid that I wasn't enough and that I had to compensate for what I did not have. And that compensation was education and just working hard without understanding that what I had and my talents, I had them in sp had it in spades. <laughs> You know, um, but I just it was just never affirmed. And so I, I went through the majority of my legal career uh, that way. 
you know, and it's just been recently, probably just before we did that trial, November of 2016, where I, I actually let that go. I said, I just, I can't live like this. I can't bring all this stress on me for a trial, especially when I know what I can do. I mean, the only thing that got me to the civil, just so you know, yeah, civil practices, I was doing these trials with against private defense attorneys, and they were saying, why are you at the DA's office? I'm like, what do you mean? Do you understand that what you're doing is leaps and bounds above what any of your, your, your coworkers are doing? And that's nothing against my coworker, but the way that you're telling this story, the way that when you speak, we people believe you, um, that, that's not something that is happening in your office. You can make more in one case than you're making in a whole year. And I'm like, really? Me? You're talking oh. about Cajardo Lindsay. I'm so glad you mean, that you can do that. that. Yeah, no. Long and so finally, long positive praise. I'm really glad you got to hear that because I've seen you in action, and I believe that's 100 percent true. Yes. Yeah. And it's not like I don't vacillate going back and forth. I mean, and that voice doesn't always talk, but I mean, I have an awareness around it. Uh. So now, especially in my last two trials, I'm just like, I'm just in the moment. I, I'm not listening to my any voices of fear. I just do what the moment tells me to do. Win, lose, or draw, you know, I'm just, that's what I'm going to do. And that's where I'm most comfortable. And so um, that's been my last two or three trials, you know. Well, and it probably makes it more fun and more organic, which then, of course, shows up in your energy levels and inherently sets you up for more success, doesn't it? Because you've been able to set the oppressive stress aside. Yes. And I feel like, you know, I'm being present and in the moment. I'm not trying to do something that's not there. I mean, a lot of times you get into trouble where you scripted it. I, I mean, when I say you, I mean me. This is how it's going to go. And I'm going to say this and I'm going to say that at this particular time, irrespective of what the jury is saying, what they're thinking. How, I mean, not what they're thinking, but your feel of them. I'm just going to plow through. And it's just like, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to tell it like it is. If I got to point at somebody, I'm going to do it. And let the judge pull me back. I'm just, this is this is what it is. And, and that that's just... How I feel, especially about insurance companies. I could, I could care less about them. I really can, because you and I know how they work. <laughs> That's right. You know, I, and I, I, I hate that I need them in case things happen. But at the end of the day, I know how. Well, my experience it might be not may not be every lawyer's experience, but my experience on how they work, it's just not good. Agreed. Agreed. And it sounds to me like you've really been able to make the practice of law authentic to you as Cajardo the human and Cajardo the actor, and you're doing it in a way that um, resonates with you, which is really powerful. And it shows when you're in the courtroom, like the whole room gets quiet and everyone can't wait to hear what you say next. It's really a powerful presence that you have in there. And um, so I just want to reflect that back to you because sometimes I feel like we we can't see our gifts as clearly as other people can see them for us because it's the water that we swim in every day. But you really are an incredible storyteller and a really, really powerful, impactful lawyer. Thank it's, you. It's cool much. to watch. I really, really appreciate that. 
So um, you've got these two beautiful sons now. I think what one was supposed to start college here soon, right? Did COVID mess that all up? Well, I have two sons. Uh, my oldest son uh, is he just finished his coursework uh, online maybe a month ago. So he goes to a school in Ohio, a small liberal arts school in Ohio. And my youngest son that you're talking about, um, he was actually a freshman. Okay. You know, he had just finished his second trimester. We had just gone out to visit him. Uh, and then a week later, we had to fly him home. We had no idea we were going to have to do that. Uh, right. But he's in, he's in upstate New York. And he is currently, as we speak, taking his finals. Awesome. And um, have either of your sons shown any interest in either acting or lawyering or both? Um, my youngest son, I would say, has the flair for acting, um, but he's definitely uh, mentioned that that's a track that he's on, that he wants to potentially be a, a lawyer. Yes. And so he's taking courses on undergrad, political science, whatnot that uh, he believes lines up with that. Right on. And I well, think uh, he'd be, if he, if he does end up uh, becoming a lawyer, uh, oh my God, hundreds <laughs> of times better than I will ever be with, with the charisma that he has um, and just the knowing who he is at this young young age. That's pretty neat. And what a powerful example you've set for them, too. And at the same time, it's also okay to have lawyering not be for them because it wasn't for you for a long time. And it's, it's okay. Absolutely. To I told them, I will support you in whatever you want to do because I'm a proponent in going and doing whatever brings you the most excitement, your bliss. I know there's a lot of risk in that and saying that to a child who says, well, you know what? I just want to host a poker game or whatever. I, you know, right. but, but that, that, that's, what I believe, I mean, you know, you do what brings you joy. I mean, it'll take care of you. I never could have dreamed that I would have the luxury of taking whatever play I wanted to do because I had this legal practice behind that, you know, and the flexibility of the legal practice in the civil law I, I, that, that I did not have when I was a criminal attorney, when I was a prosecutor. I, I just... It just compounds me how I'm able to do both. <laughs> Which is a really but beautiful I, thing. It's well, that's really what powerful. I desired, and that's what yeah. was created. Ugh. I know on some level that was what was desired, and that was what was created. And you've also, it sounds like from your storytelling so far, have had a really, really clear connection with your gut and when the voice inside of you says acting or when the voice inside of you says this or says that you've followed it which I think also speaks really clearly to your own intuition and your own um, response to where you're being called to use your talents I mean a lot of people I think really turn a, a blind ear to those messages and those hints yes I listen I, I listen in fact when it was time to leave the DA's office I when I heard that voice I quit I went the, the, the time I, the, from the moment I felt I was in court that afternoon, I said, this is it. This is, you're done. I called my wife um, coming from the Lindsay Flanagan courthouse and told her what I was going to do. And then I got over to um, the DA's office, went directly to Mitch Morrissey's office and said, I'm putting my two weeks in. 
that's how quickly it happened. I heard it that afternoon, walked over, put my two weeks in with no plan on what was next. And I ain't gonna lie, I burned through savings, but I wanted to figure it out, but that's what I felt I needed to do. Um, there were times when it was getting close to where I didn't have the mortgage and out of nowhere, boom, I get a job at the city attorney's office. I'm like, how did I end up back practicing law <laughs> and not even doing what I was doing? I'm prosecuting uh, petty offenses now at the city attorney's office. Right. But it was for my process. You know, that's where you really can become a trial attorney is at the city attorney's office. We were doing trials every day of the week we were on. You couldn't prepare. Oh, wow. That was the thing that I feared the most. I needed to prepare. Now I was put in a situation where I couldn't prepare. I didn't know what was going to go to trial. I had three things set for the same day. And I'm trying to interview witnesses while I'm trying to dispo cases. I mean, it was one of the wildest experiences, but I needed that to break out of this mode of thinking that I had to be um, ultra prepared in order to go to trial. You couldn't be ultra prepared because you didn't know what you were going to go to trial on. And I got that experience that really, really helped me. And when it was time to go leave there, I left. Amazing. Something else came. Back as in Shanker. I worked there for a, a summer. <laughs> and then when it was time to leave there, I left. And then I got with Rich Cotty. Cardi Lawfer. That is so cool. Series of listening to my inner guidance system. It really doesn't ever lead us wrong. I think a lot of us are too afraid to listen, but it sounds off for a reason. And I, my personal theory is that a lot of people experience internal tension to the point of having health breakdowns when they constantly ignore those nudges and those pulls. Um, because I think there is something to it and it's your inner wisdom and it's your knowingness that's guiding you. And you have not experienced the tension in as many ways as most people, because you simply just listened and then you take action as scary as it probably is every single time that you do it. Uh, it's, yeah. I mean, it wasn't that easy in certain no. instances, but in some it, were, it was, but in others, like as I began that I have two kids, little kids, those decisions were a lot more challenging uh, later on. I'm like, wow, now they're in private school and are you saying you're gonna, I mean, it just, you know, I really just had to trust. And it all, and it all worked out, it's, it's working out. It's working out. Yeah, and so um, I guess I wanna uh, end with, you know, what advice would you give listeners? I, I truly believe this is the heart and soul of living a life of maximum Maybe enthusiasm there. is this concept of following your passion, um, following your there dreams, you following your desires, listening to that inner voice. What advice would you give people to try and tune into that voice more clearly? Megan, I missed about the last 30 seconds of what you said. Okay. I said, what advice would you give people to really tune in and listen to that inner voice the way that you have? Um, because I think that really goes to the heart of living with maximum enthusiasm is paying attention to those nudges and those callings to the next thing. What suggestions would you make for people to tune in on their inner wisdom? Um, well, I think the, the, with this coronavirus is, is a big key. It slowed everybody down. Right. It just really slowed everybody down. And for me, um, and I'm not saying my way is for everybody, but I try to practice that stillness. And I don't necessarily call it meditation, but at least every morning for the last four or five years, I'll get up 
maybe five, six thirty. Uh, when it's quiet, and I'll just go sit and just practice being still and listening to what comes up. Uh, sometimes nothing comes up. Other times it's like, whoa, I have this journal and I write and it's like, it's like I vomit all kind of things that are coming up and saying this is what this is what you need to do and how you need to do it. So I would say cultivate uh, a practice, at least for me is what I say, cultivate a practice of stillness so that you can actually hear when that voice speaks because it's never banged me over the head. It's never screamed. It's always been that gentle nudge within saying, try this, call that person. Um, it's almost like a releasing it's a, um, of control. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's a surrender to it for sure. Surrender. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I'm not going to lie. I listened to books on that as well. I just recently finished a book by Michael Singer called The, the Surrender Experiment. Yeah. Oh, such a good one. I've talked about that one a lot on this show, actually. I'm a big oh, fan. Oh, really? <laughs> and... I guess what I would say is that I think a lot of people resist sitting quietly with those thoughts and with those nudges because it's so scary that it's far easier and more convenient to over busy busy ourselves or distract ourselves with shopping or working or eating or whatever um, to avoid sitting quietly with those thoughts. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I'm going to lie. When I first started doing it, it was the same way with me. I mean, and I don't want to make it sound like my life is so bad, but I mean, I grew up with some trauma and I found that every time I would sit and get still, that trauma would come up. And I realized it was, it was coming up because um, I was in a present moment and those traumas happened in a present moment and that I was going so fast. It wasn't until I slowed it down that it came up to be dealt with and healed. Sure. Um, and when I got it healed, meaning I let it just course through my body, those hurtful, painful feelings and all that, and instead of trying to ignore it, just going through it, once I healed, I felt like I was a lot clearer vessel to hear what was next for my life. Mm. That's a huge takeaway, that we can't get clear on what's next for us until we resolve and clear some of the things from our past that still get in our way. That's really okay. powerful. Because we would prefer and we can, to but it's going to be laced with those fears from those things. At least right. right. Which is, I mean, just a testament to you shared how traumatic your work in that law firm was early on, that corporate law firm. And yet here you are writing and directing a movie and its theme at its core is that I am enough. And if not now, then when? And if not me, then who? And that just speaks to the power of you processing things that you've experienced and channeling your energies towards these really incredible projects that you're working on. So I just think that's really amazing and inspiring. And I just want to say thanks for sharing that and sharing this message with people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, my friend, I'm going to let you get on to your dinner with your family. Thank you so much for your time today. I am really excited to share the fundraising link and I would love to round back with you once some more of the filming on the movie starts so that we can check yes. in and do an updated progress report. Okay, that'd be great. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Kajardo. I really appreciate your time. All right, you take care. Have a wonderful evening. Thanks, you too. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Maximum Enthusiasm with Megan Hopman. Subscribe, check out our blog, and learn more at MaximumEnthusiasm.com. Thank you.